Lord, we do want to hide in you. And so as we approach your word today, would you come near to us and show us more of who you are? Would you help us to see more of you as our covenant-making and covenant-keeping God? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've learned in the, in the last uh, few uh, weeks, or even, you know, this semester, God was taking this newborn nation for his very own precious people, and they were to be unique from all of the other pagan nations around them. They were to be like their redeemer. They were to reflect his heart, right, his character in their interactions with others. This was a special relationship, and it was initiated by God, by his grace, and it was not dependent on their obedience. Remember, God didn't see them languishing in Egypt and say, if you'll obey me, I'll rescue you. That's not what he did. He rescued them. He saved them. He redeemed them just because he's gracious. He's merciful. But now he says, this is a relationship that that we're going to have. And these are the terms of our relationship. You need to obey me because I'm laying out these laws for your good, right? So first in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, those were the ten words. And then he added more detailed application last week we saw in Exodus 21 through 23. And together all of these are known as the Book of the Covenant. Now in chapter 24 we come to two incredibly dramatic scenes where we see what might be the first of its kind worship service, right? It has lots of elements of worship. We see the confirmation ceremony or the ratification ceremony for the covenant. And then we see Moses who ascends to the top of the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. But before we dive into Exodus 24, I want us to do just a brief review of covenants, a little background on covenant. Back in Genesis, chapter 12 and chapter 15, we see that God made a covenant with Abraham. The word made, that he made a covenant, in Hebrew means to cut or to sever. And the word covenant in Hebrew means an agreement or a compact. And so really to make a covenant really means literally to cut a deal. This deal, a covenant was made, do you remember how it happened in that with, with God and Abraham in Genesis 15. All right, it happened at night, and Abraham was told to get pieces of animals, to cut them in half, and put one on one side and one on the other. Then Abraham went to sleep, and it was God who made the covenant by walking between the pieces, all right? So this covenant was one-sided. This covenant had no dependence on Abraham. It was irrevocable. It was unbreakable. It was sovereignly made by God. It was unconditional. God made some wonderful promises, right? He promised offspring. He promised uh, land. He promised blessing. And so all the way along the way here in our study of Exodus, we've seen the ways that God has started fulfilling his promises to the people. He kept his promise by multiplying the people. Remember, he blessed them. They were fruitful, and they multiplied, and they filled the land in Exodus 1. And then in Exodus 2, we saw how God heard their cries. And do you remember that sweet phrase that he remembered his covenant with them? That's beautiful. And then in Exodus 3, 
The Lord met Moses at the burning bush and he reminded him. He said, I am the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I am the one who is going to be sending you back to Egypt. And I promise, he said to Abraham, that I will bring you up. And then in Exodus 6, Moses was coming to know Yahweh a little bit more here as a covenant-keeping God. And God reminds him, I have remembered my covenant. He said, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. I brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So he's reminding Moses of that promise to Abraham. Then we saw a couple weeks ago in Exodus 19, before laying out the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, the terms, he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then do you remember at the very beginning of the Ten Commandments, before he even laid out the first commandment, what did he remind them of? He reminded them that he was their covenant-keeping God. He said, I've kept my promise. Remember who you were. Remember whose you are now. I've kept my promise. I brought you out. I redeemed you. You're mine. Okay? It's my grace on you. So he reminded them that he rescued them by his grace, and their response should be obedience. He didn't redeem them because they were more righteous than anyone else, but he delivered them because of his mercy, his grace, and his steadfast love. And then when he laid out the terms of the covenant and the rules in Exodus 21 through 23, he outlined how to carry out those Ten Commands in their day-to-day living, in everyday life. And so we saw last week how God has an emphasis, a value on human life and dignity. God's laws reflect his heart, and they're meant to protect us. They're meant to help us flourish. Now, a word about covenants. I want you to remember that there's a radical difference between the covenant that God made with Abraham, which was one-sided, and the covenant that he's making here with Moses and the people of Israel. All right, they're very different. The Mosaic Covenant is conditional. Back in Exodus 19, he said, if you will obey, right? Galatians 3 tells us that the law was intended to guide and to preserve the nation of Israel as they waited for the fulfillment of all of God's promises. It's God's grace that gives us the law. It's not grace for him just to relax his command for obedience and just let it go. No, that's not grace. It's God's grace that gives us eyes to see our sin and our desperate need for a Savior. And our Savior would be the one who would obey all of his commands perfectly in our place and give us his righteousness. Martin Luther put it this way. After the law has humbled, terrified, and completely crushed you so that you are on the brink of despair, 
Then see to it that you know how to use the law correctly. For its function and use is not only to disclose our sin and the wrath of God, but also to drive us to Christ. Okay, so we see that God would be faithful to all of the promises that he made to Israel. He would be faithful under the covenant, regardless of Israel's sin and failure. But how about Israel? Have we already seen some of their failures? Their failures to trust in God's goodness, to obey his voice? Do you remember how they complained at the Red Sea when they were stuck? That was just three days out of Egypt, and they started complaining. Or how about three days after the Red Sea when they got to Mara? They began grumbling and complaining. Then remember they were hungry in the wilderness and they failed test after test with the manna and the Sabbath. Then they began quarreling with God, with Moses at Rephidim. And under the terms of this new Mosaic covenant that God was giving, their failures were going to cost them dearly. Israel would fail just like Adam failed back in the garden. Eventually, they're all going to be taken into exile, into Babylon, as we've been learning in our sermon series in Daniel. All right, in these verses now in Exodus 24, we see what I'm calling a covenant sandwich. All right, this is a structure here that everyone is gathered at the foot of the mountain, and we see in verses 1 and 2 that they're invited to come up, and then in verses 9 through 11, they actually do go up the mountain. So let's read verses 1 and 2. And then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Note that it's only Moses that can come near. The rest have to worship from afar. The people would stay where they were. You remember how they trembled and they rightly feared the Lord and they begged Moses to be their mediator? God was teaching them to revere his holiness, his perfect righteousness. He is a sovereign Lord of the universe who judges justly and he's going to pour out his wrath on sin. So even the priests and the elders had to keep their distance. They had limited access, but they would be representatives of the people in this this ratification ceremony that's going to happen. And so the bookend then is in verses 9 through 11 where they actually go up and we're going to talk about that a little bit more later. In the middle here we see the middle of the sandwich, the meat, is a very solemn, serious ceremony that takes place and it has many of the components of a worship service. So let me read that. Moses came up and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning, and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and he said, behold, 
the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So first we see covenant words and rules, what's called the book of the covenant here, the reading of God's word. And for us in a worship service, the reading, is, reading of God's word is an important part of our worship. We want to hear from the Lord, don't we, when we come together each week? Then the people make covenant promises. They say, we will do, we'll do it all, right? We saw this back in chapter 19 as well. And so this is actually the third time. And you, we might say three strikes and you're out, right? They say three times, we're gonna do it, we're gonna obey. And they just, they can't do it, right? But they're confessing their, right here, their, their commitment to obedience. And it's easy for us to stand in judgment, isn't it? Knowing how they are going to fail miserably. I think, at least for me personally, I'd rather identify with Moses in this passage, or at least some of the elders, right? But to identify with the people here, but I think it's better to see ourselves as the people of Israel. I think we can identify with their desire to obey and yet their struggle to obey. And you know, even the Apostle Paul wrote, for I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And who will deliver him? We know Jesus, right? Okay, we also see covenant blood here in this section. The Lord was making a covenant, but the people were unworthy to participate because of sin. And so the Lord in his mercy makes a way through sacrifices, all right? Blood is an obvious symbol of life, and it plays an important role here in these rituals. The shedding of blood is associated with paying a ransom. And the sprinkling of blood, or the word that's used in the ESV here is through, okay? It's the same word. Through is sprinkling. The sprinkling of blood points toward cleansing. So together, these two point to atonement for sins. One commentator put it this way. He said, one sacrifice was the burnt offering or the whole burnt offering in which the entire animal was consumed by fire. So there would be nothing left here. The whole offering was given over to God. This was a very costly sacrifice and it re represented full atonement for sin and total dedication to God. But the other sacrifice that's mentioned here is called the peace offerings, or it's also called fellowship offerings in other translations. And unlike the burnt offering, the fellowship offering was not given over completely to the flames, but it was grilled until tender, and then it was served up for them for dinner, okay? But before any of this could be done, what had to happen with the blood? They'd have to drain it out of the animal, right? So blood from the fellowship offerings or the peace offerings was carefully collected in these bowls, large bowls. And then we see what Moses does with it later. And now in the first time through this, I thought, wow, this is a beautiful way that this points to the blood of Jesus shed for us. And it is, we've already seen in Exodus, right? How Jesus is the Passover lamb that was his blood, he was a substitute for us, and, and his blood was shed as an atoning sacrifice. And the writer of Hebrews agrees. He says, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. And later he says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 
But there's a little bit more here. The sacrifices of oxen in this ratification ceremony also represent the duties of each part, each party in this covenant. The covenant is a matter of life and death. You remember back to the covenant that God made with Abraham. Remember how you walk between the cut pieces of animals. And what the person making this covenant, making this deal is saying is, may this happen to me if I fail to keep my end of this deal, this covenant. So what Moses did was he took the blood, he divided it into these two different halves, right? Like two different walls of blood. And he put half in the basin and half he threw on the altar, all right? And that's representing God's side of the covenant. The other half of the blood he takes and he throws it on the people. And the you know, after he read, he does that after he reads the book of the covenant, and then they say all that we will do. And so when he threw it on the people, he says, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So by this blood, they were saying they were bound to keep God's law. But by the same blood, they were also forgiven. Okay? So the blood pointed to God's mercy and grace because even though God knew they were sinful and they really had no hope of keeping this covenant, God knew and God provided a way for forgiveness of their sins. All right, let's read verses 9 through 11. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate, and they drank. So here's the culmination of this ratification ceremony. It's a meal of covenant fellowship. And in those days, this was usual practice for the people making a covenant to sit down and to share food afterwards. They would seal the deal, so to speak, in the presence of God. And so what we have here in these verses is absolutely stunning, right? It says here that they saw the God of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate and they drank. And I know that many of you grappled with this this week. This is challenging because looking at God was supposed to be fatal. And in a few more chapters in Exodus 33, when Moses asks to see God, we're going to learn what God says, right? He says, you can't. You can't see my face and live. So what's going on? How do we deal with seemingly contradictory statements when we are studying something in the Bible. Well, we can't be of the conclusion that, well, we're going to quit studying the Bible because I see some things that appear to be contradictory. So don't do that, right? But continue to grapple with these things and pray that the Lord would help you understand what is meant here, all right? So Moses seems to be aware that there's going to be some difficulties of this, right? Because he doesn't just leave it as they saw God and they beheld God. But what does he add here? And God, he, God, did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. All right? So there's, there's some reason that God didn't kill them. 
when it should have been sudden death for them, right? They could have died, but they didn't. So what exactly did they see? Did you come here this morning thinking I would tell you everything that they saw? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what they saw. We don't know. But what we have is we have a description of what was under God's feet, right? And even that was hard to understand because Moses used words here like, as it were, and like, right? He's having trouble finding the words to describe it. So one commentator said this, why doesn't the Bible say more about what God looked like? <laughs> Maybe because the elders never looked much higher than the bottom of God's feet. They seem to have become most intimately acquainted with the floor, which suggests that they fell on their faces in worship. They took one look at God, and immediately they lowered their gaze. Wow, you know, what a posture that we should have. Another possibility is that they were looking up at God from somewhere underneath, like Ezekiel, right? He, too, struggled to describe what he saw. He kept using phrases like, well, what it looked like, or as if, or the appearance of, or the likeness of. And even under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he had trouble explaining that vision. Isaiah 66, 1 tells us, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. So we don't know what they saw. Maybe it was God's footstool. But the experience of seeing God here is a foretaste of Revelation 22, when we're told that we will see his face. That's a beautiful thing to look forward to. All right, so we've seen so far a biblical pattern for worship, but I think we also see a beautiful gospel picture here. Do you remember where they all started? Do you remember the triangle that we had a couple weeks ago in Sharice's lesson? Well, they're down at the bottom of the mountain. They're at a distance away, having been warned not to approach the mountain, not to get too close. And why was that? Because of their sin. Their sin separated them from God. Sin is also a barrier in our relationship with God. We were God's enemies, breaking God's law. But then in grace, God calls them to come into his presence. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And through his blood, and only through his blood, we draw near. God mercifully atoned for their sin, and he atones for ours through the blood of the covenant. So God gave them his word. He gives us his word. Then amazingly, God brought them into his presence when they saw his glory, and they had a fellowship meal with him. Does that sound familiar with what we can look forward to? This is a glimpse of heaven. Soon and very soon, we will see him face to face. I think of the song that was popular so many years ago. We shall behold him. Yes, we shall behold him face to face, our Savior and our Lord. That's our future. It's glorious. I don't know why I'm crying. It's not sad. It's glorious. But that is what we, that is what our future is going to be when we believe in Jesus and we have his blood covering us. All right, so they are invited to come up to this cloud. The Lord said to Moses, 
Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. The climax here in this chapter, or the high point, is coming now when Moses went up on the mountain and he entered into the glory cloud. And verses 15 through 18 are really like a poetic summary of the verses 12 through 14. Let me read those next. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud, and he went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So Moses has this privilege of being invited up into the mountain further. This trip was different, 40 days and 40 nights. Who else do you know that, that was out in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights? Jesus, right. Well, what did Moses hear and what did Moses see? And what was he doing all that time? Well, if you look ahead to Exodus 25, verse 1, we read, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, and his instructions continue then until Exodus 31, verse 18, where we read, And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. That's what he was doing, right? So what Moses gets are detailed instructions for building God's dwelling, the tabernacle. And then, he, then we also read about the, impl the uh, imp implementation, that's a long word, right? Of all those instructions, we see that in Exodus 35 through 39. So when I created this study, what I decided to do was to lump the instructions and the implementation together and we're going to study those in three lessons on the tabernacle. And that's in lessons 18, 19, and 20. So what we're going to do for next week, we're going to jump ahead to Exodus 32 and find out what was happening at the bottom of the mountain when uh, Aaron and her were babysitting the people. Okay? <laughs> so... Now, we have, to, we have to, you know, remember that the people see Moses walking into this cloud. And what do they see? What did this say here? It says they saw a, like a devouring fire. Okay, so Moses is walking into what maybe looked like a volcano. We don't know. And so the people might have thought, Moses is a goner. He's dead. He's never coming back, right? But Moses gets the Ten Commandments here written on the tablets of stone by the Lord. And spoiler alert these tablets are going to need to be rewritten, okay, because of what happens while Moses is away. But I'll leave that for you to discover next week. Now, one question you might have is, why were there two tablets? Was it because there wasn't enough room on one for all the words? Or was it because the law was divided into two parts? When you see visual representations of the, table, of the Ten Commandments, don't you see that? Like one through four here, and then five, right? That's, what, that's the way you see it. And you think, oh, these are the, these are the vertical commandments and these are the horizontal commandments. And, and, but that's, 
we have to remember the context of this chapter. The context of this chapter is the ratification of this, the covenant ceremony, right? God is making a covenant. And a covenant is a legally binding contract, and the terms need to be written down. Have you ever gone in to sign a mortgage contract for a house? Like that, there's, there's multiple copies. Well, here there's two copies that are made, right? One for each party, one for the Lord, and one for the people. But the Lord is giving Moses two copies, and they're written with the finger of God. This is really, this is really significant. We're going to move on here to seeing Jesus in the new covenant as compared to the old covenant. And I have a quote there for your, on your handout. I'm not going to read all of it, but Jason DeRoshi said this. Jesus is a better covenant mediator than Moses because he offers a superior sacrifice that brings better results, better provision, and better promises. So now God's people were warned to stay away in the, in the old covenant when God gave the law. They, were, had, they had to worship from afar. But we are encouraged to draw near, right? In the new covenant, in Hebrews, we read, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But he, the writer of Hebrews goes on, but you have come to Mount Zion, right? And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We see next, next comparison is the mountain trembled. Mount Sinai trembled when God gave the law. And we see also in the New Covenant that at Mount Calvary, at Golgotha, also trembled when Jesus died, when he inaugurated the New Covenant. We read in Matthew 27, 51, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. In the Old Covenant, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders beheld God, and they ate and drank. And in the New Covenant, Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating the new covenant. Jesus said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Also in Revelation chapter 3, we read, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will to come in with him and eat with him and he with me. In the Old Covenant, Moses alone could draw near as the mediator. But now, Jesus, the true Israel, he is God's faithful, true priest and king. Jesus brings us back to fellowship with God through his atoning sacrifice. And Jesus is a better mediator. He intercedes for us as our perfect high priest. In Hebrews 2, it says he is a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
And Hebrews 7 says, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us, for them. In the Old Covenant, obedience was commanded, but it was impossible. For instance, did they obey that command that we saw last week in Exodus 23, that they were to make no covenant with the people in the land when they entered in? No. Joshua made a covenant with the people of, of Gibeon. They didn't follow the command for Sabbath rest. They fell into idolatry, and later they're taken into exile. But in the new covenant, Jesus' perfect obedience and his blood inaugurate that new covenant. It doesn't depend on our obedience, but on his perfect obedience. So it's, it's of grace we get his obedience by faith. And 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In the Old Covenant, gracious redemption we saw from Egypt, gracious call to obey his commands and to reflect his heart, but it didn't supply that inner power that they needed to keep those commands. So even Moses looked toward the new covenant. In Deuteronomy 30, he says this, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live and you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. And then the beautiful statement that we get in Ezekiel chapter 36 about the new covenant. God says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey all my rules. Now the old covenant was written on tablets of stone and it was works-based, works-driven, because their hearts weren't changed. But in the new covenant, we're redeemed from our slavery to sin, and the Spirit enables us to follow his loving commands. And of course, this is progressive, and that's called sanctification. But now God's law is written on our hearts. Jeremiah 31 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It's beautiful. And then in Hebrews 10, we read, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts, and write them on their minds. Second Corinthians 3 tells us, now that we have God's law in our hearts and in our minds, we are also a letter to other people, right? We are a letter from Christ, right? Written not with ink, but with the Spirit of God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So through the Spirit, God is displaying Jesus to those around us. In the Old Covenant, it was a come and see kind of a religion. They, they had the tabernacle that did move with them, eventually the temple. They were in one place, but now in the New Covenant, we reflect our Redeemer, and we go and we tell the good news. 
We are his temple. He lives in us. And we are part of that promise way back in Genesis 12 that all the nations would be blessed through the offspring of Abraham. That's us. We're part of that blessing to all nations. We're going to talk a little bit about animal blood here and how it relates to old versus new. Moses said, this is the blood of the covenant. He threw that blood on the people, remember? And when Jesus came, when we are in Christ, he says this. What do we get when we are in Christ and we are covered with his blood? We get the forgiveness of sin. We get propitiation by his blood. We're justified by his blood. We're saved from him, from the wrath of God. We get redemption through his blood. We are brought near by the blood of Christ. By the blood of Jesus, we are reconciled, redeemed, forgiven. We are saved. And so when Moses threw the blood on the people, he said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord made with you in acceptance with all these words. But when Jesus came as the Lamb of God, he said, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And last, we see here the sacrifice. We see the sacrifice that is torn in the ceremony. This spoke to the judgment of sin. In the new covenant, this is Jesus' body that is broken for us. He is that rock of ages that is cleft, that is torn for us. He is the Lamb of God that rides into Jerusalem to the cries of Hosanna, Hosanna. And then he dies at the very time Passover lambs all over the city of Jerusalem are also dying. This is the inauguration of the new covenant. When Jesus dies on the cross, do you remember what happens to the curtain in the temple? It is torn in two from the top to the bottom. Do you see now how the cross is at the very center of our redemption? It's only through the torn body and the shed blood of Jesus that we are saved. It's only through the shed blood of Jesus that God establishes his eternal covenant. And the only way to be saved is through the blood of Jesus. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean, with his blood thrown on us from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So ladies, the good news is not that God has changed since Exodus and has now become all soft and fuzzy. At Mount Sinai, the people were right to tremble and to fear the Lord. He is still holy, 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 and he dwells in unapproachable light. And the people enthusiastically proclaimed, all that you have said we will do. They failed, but we know who did do all. Jesus did all. He is our perfect mediator. He took our sin. He gave us his perfect righteousness. So covered by his blood, we have nothing to fear, and we can draw near to him. So let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for being our new and living way that you opened for us through the curtain that is through your flesh. There's none of the labors of my hands can, can fulfill your law's demands. 
Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin, mm -mm, they could not atone. But you, you must save us, you alone, by your blood. So there's nothing in my hand that I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I, that's me, I'm foul. I'm going to fly to the fountain, so wash me, Savior, or I die. And it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. <laughs>